Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast. Last time, we talked about Olav Tryggvason and his attempts to convert the Norwegians to Christianity and to keep the Danes out of Norway. When Olav took over, Norway was run by Jarl Håkon Sigurdsson in the name of the Danish king, Sven Forkbeard. And when Olav drowned, or merely disappeared without a trace, at the Battle of Svalder in the year 1000, Håkon's son, Jarl Erik Håkonsson, took over the rule of Norway. Once again, the country was under Danish suzerainty. Today, we'll look at the life and career of the nominal king of Norway, Sven Forkbeard. He's been looming in the background for several episodes already, first when he toppled his father, Harald Bluetooth, and later when he first partnered up with Olav Tryggvason to raid in England, only later to fight said Olav for control over Norway. As we've already covered in the episode about Harald Bluetooth, Sven started a rebellion which eventually led to his father's death and Sven's elevation to the throne of Denmark. This happened sometime in the mid-980s, and Sven Forkbeard would remain king of Denmark until his death in 1014. But during his 30 or so years as king, he would expand his realm considerably, creating something of a Viking empire. Episode 26, A Viking Empire. We have quite a few sources that mention Sven Forkbeard, both in Scandinavia as well as in other places, such as England and Germany. The missionary Adam of Bremen, for instance, whom we've already mentioned on a couple of occasions, wrote about Sven in his book Deeds of the Bishops of Hamburg, and he doesn't paint a particularly flattering picture of the Danish king with the divided facial hair. As you know, Sven's father, Harald Bluetooth, not only united Denmark, but was also baptized. As far as Adam of Bremen was concerned, that was obviously a good thing. What was even better, from Adam's perspective, was that Harald appointed German bishops in Denmark. This increased the power and the glory of the church in Germany, and not least the archbishopric of Hamburg, to which Adam belonged. Sven, on the other hand, had different ideas when it came to religion. Adam of Bremen goes as far as to accuse Sven Forkbeard of being a pagan, and he even says that Sven rebelled against his pious Christian father Harold Bluetooth because of Harold's devotion to Christ. In this version of events, Sven Forkbeard was influenced by his pagan foster father, Palnatoki, and once he became king, he persecuted Christians, and worse, expelled the German bishops from Scania and Zealand. This was obviously a bad thing in Adam's view. So God punished the rebellion pagan Sven Forkbeard by granting the Swedes military victory against Denmark, which forced Sven to flee his country and go into exile in the British Isles. There he languished for 14 years, paying for his sins against God and the Archbishop of Hamburg. Only after accepting the truth of the Christian religion, Sven Forkbeard could regain his kingdom and flourish as a ruler. Modern-day historians have challenged this version of events. It's unlikely that Sven Forkbeard was forced into exile for 14 years, not least since there is evidence indicating that he commissioned churches to be built in Denmark throughout those years. The fact that the king was promoting the construction of churches also, ever so slightly, undermines the claim that he was a pagan persecuting Christians. So what's up with Adam of Bremen? What did he have against Sven Forkbeard? Well, 
One possible, even plausible reason, is that Sven Forkbeard preferred to bring priests and other clerics from England rather than the Archbishopric of Hamburg, as his father had done. It seems like quite a few Danish-speaking priests from the Danelaw region in England came to Denmark during Sven Forkbeard's reign, and they replaced the German ones that had been running ecclesiastical matters in the country under held Bluetooth. It's not difficult to see why this would annoy the Germans and their loyal, loyal chronicler, Adam of Bremen. This might not only have been a cultural preference on the part of Sven Forkbeard, favoring priests of Danish origins in Denmark. At this time, bishops often played an active part in politics, so getting rid of the German bishops was a way to weaken the influence of the Holy Roman Empire in Denmark and to strengthen the country's independence. The shift away from German to Danish clerics from England may not have been a purely defensive move, though. It can also be an indication of Sven Forkbeard's own expansive ambitions. As I hope you remember, in the 990s, Sven Forkbeard used to go raiding in England together with Olav Tryggvason, until Olav one day went on a solo raid behind Sven's back, which annoyed Sven Forkbeard so much that he never forgave Olav. Of course, it didn't help that the King of Norway later went behind his back again and married Sven's sister, whom he had strategically married off to an important, albeit old, Slavic chieftain. But we covered all of that last time. But just because the Olav-Sven partnership had come to an end, it didn't mean that Sven Forkbeard and the Danes stopped raiding in England. There was far too much silver to be had, either by violence or by the threat of violence. Over the first decade of the 11th century, the Danes extorted enormous sums of money in Danegeld from the hapless English. After a while, those hapless English grew tired of having to fork over large fortunes of silver to extortionist pirates from Scandinavia every now and then. So they complained to their king, a guy named Ethelred, that he'd better do something about it. There was also a rumor that the Scandinavians living in England itself were planning to kill the king and take control over the country. So King Ethelred talked to his advisors and reached the conclusion that the best thing to do if he wanted to rid his kingdom of the Viking menace once and for all would be to kill all Scandinavians living in England, men, women and children. It was decided that the deed would be done on the feast day of St. Bryce, Friday the 13th of November in the year 1002. The order was spread around Ethelred's kingdom and on the appointed day, armed men sprung into action, killing as many people of Scandinavian descent as possible, regardless of their age, sex, or if they had ever participated in a Viking raid or not. The event is known to posterity as the St. Bryce's Day Massacre, and it turned out to be a bit of a mistake. Not only did it not solve the Viking raid problem, it infuriated many Scandinavians, both survivors in the British Isles and back in Scandinavia. In fact, due to this blunder, Ethelred was labelled with the nickname the Unready. It doesn't mean that he wasn't prepared, but rather comes from an older meaning of the word that should be interpreted as ill-advised. It's even a pun on his name, since Ethelred means well-advised. To begin with, it turned out to be impossible to kill all the Scandinavians in England in one fell swoop. Most historians agree that many people were indeed murdered on that day, but it's impossible to estimate exactly how many. The majority of the victims lived in large towns with relatively small Scandinavian populations, such as London and Bristol, or in the communities along the edges of the area that had been a part of the Danelaw. 
And for those of you who might not remember, the Danelaw was the part of England with a particularly extensive Scandinavian settlement, which had been ruled by Scandinavian law until half a century earlier, when it had been conquered by the English. You can refresh your memory by going back to episode 7. Anyway, within the Danelaw proper, the Scandinavians would probably have been able to fight back, perhaps even killing Ethelred's soldiers. We do know that Scandinavians who lived in Oxford were killed, because two years after the massacre, King Ethelred issued a royal charter where he explained the need to rebuild the church in town. Apparently, some Scandinavians had sought refuge in the church since it was forbidden to spill blood in a holy place. When their would-be killers weren't able to get them out of there, they just set fire to the church, killing the Scandinavians hiding inside the building without technically having to go inside and spilling their blood. In 2008, archaeologists discovered a few dozen skeletons during an excavation in Oxford. Radiocarbon dating has found that these charred bones were from the late 10th century or early 11th century. By pure luck, DNA testing has even matched one of these skeletons with the remains from a Viking Age grave in Denmark. Lately, some historians have downplayed the extent and significance of the St. Prizes Day Massacre, pointing to the relative scarcity of archaeological evidence like the finds from Oxford. Instead, they like to claim that the killings were exaggerated, the number of victims inflated, to justify the events that followed. So which were the events that followed? The events that ultimately gave Ethelred his unflattering nickname. According to tradition, among the victims of the massacre were a man called Palig Tokesen and his wife Gunhild. Palig was the king's elderman of Devonshire, and some sources claim that he broke his oath to King Ethelred and joined a Viking raid, plundering England. Now, if Palig actually did go plundering and killing in England together with a band of Vikings, King Ethelred could perhaps be forgiven for wanting him dead. But why could kill Palig's wife? That not only seems unjustified, but also ill-advised, because Gunhild was none other than the daughter of Harold Bluetooth. That, of course, made her the sister of Sven Forkbeard, the king of Denmark. And when Sven heard that his sister and brother-in-law had been murdered, he didn't take the news particularly well. He decided to avenge the massacre by raiding England the following year. Exeter was burnt to the ground and several other places in southern England were also sacked. The following year, 1004, the Danes were back. This time, they focused their attention on East Anglia and they stayed until the following year. Then they were, there were additional raids by Danish Vikings almost every year until 1012. Those who like to downplay the St. Price's Day Massacre prefer to see these raids just as another series of Viking raids albeit particularly brutal ones. In other words, these raids were motivated by greed, just like all the other raids, but they were dressed up in the more respectable cloak of vengeance for the murder of Danes in England. In the summer of 1013, Sven Forkbeard intensified his vengeance campaign even further by leading a large fleet to England. This time, the Danish Vikings hadn't come just to plunder and kill. They had come to conquer. Sven and his fleet first landed in southeast England, but soon moved north, first to East Anglia and then onward to Northumbria. The Earl of Northumbria surrendered to Sven Forkbeard and recognized him as his lord, and soon afterward the five boroughs followed suit. Sven gathered hostages from these areas and uh, ordered the English to provide him with his, and his army with provisions and horses. 
he left a smaller force under the command of his son, Knut, before leading the majority of his army south to Oxford and Winchester. Both cities opened their gates to Sven Forkbeard and handed over hostages of their own. The Danes then marched on London, where King Ethelred was, no doubt waiting for the inevitable attack. If the capital and the king were to fall to Sven Forkbeard, he would effectively make himself the ruler of all of England. But at the walls of London, Sven's luck turned. The defenders of the city weren't ready to give up without a fight, and so Sven decided that he wasn't going to waste any time and energy on besieging London. Instead, Sven decided to turn around and go and conquer Bath instead, which he did. By now, the Londoners were more or less the last holdouts against the invaders. When they saw that basically all of England had fallen to Sven Forkbeard and his invasion force, they gave up the fight and yielded to the Danes. King Ethelred and his sons Edward and Alfred went into exile in Normandy, where they were welcomed by King Ethelred's in-laws, since his wife, the boy's mother, Emma, was originally from Normandy. Meanwhile, back in England, Sven Forkbeard celebrated his triumph over Ethelred by having himself crowned King of England on Christmas Day in 1013. This was no doubt the high point of Sven's career. He was now the king of a vast Viking empire, including Denmark, Norway and England, connected by the North Sea. This made Sven Forkbeard one of the most powerful rulers of Europe at the time, and certainly the most successful Scandinavian king up until that point in history. Unfortunately for Sven, he didn't get to enjoy this new status as king of England for more than five weeks, because he died suddenly on Sunday, February 3rd, 1014. Sven's death caused a political crisis. Even at the best of times, successions were events that could lead to instability and the breaking up of states that had been held together thanks to the personality of the king. We've seen this on more than one occasion already. And here we're not talking about a country with a single language, culture or people, but an empire spanning a big chunk of northwestern Europe. So it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that it broke apart. Harald Svensson, Sven Forkbeard's younger son, had been left in charge of Denmark when his father and older brother Knut had gone off to conquer England. Harald now succeeded Sven as king of Denmark without too much drama. In England, however, the situation was different. The Scandinavians living in what had been the Danelaw region proclaimed Knut Svensson king of England. But the English nobility had other plans. They got together and decided to invite Ethelred to return from his exile in Normandy and to reclaim his place as King of England. Ethelred, obviously, was more than happy to do so, and by the spring of 1014 he had managed to take back his kingdom and forced Knut Svensson out of the country. As a last act of vengeance, Knut had his English hostages mutilated and left on the beach at Sandwich in southeastern England before boarding his ships and setting off for Denmark. By the time Knut and his fleet sailed off, Ethelred was probably ready to put the last six months or so behind him, hoping this whole Danish intermezzo had been nothing but an isolated incident and that it would all be smooth sailing from now on. If he did, then he was wrong because Knut Svensson would be back. When Knut showed up in Denmark with what was left of his loyal warriors, his younger brother Harald became worried. Knut was hell-bent on ruling a kingdom, and if he couldn't have England, Harald was afraid he'd demand to be king of Denmark instead. So when Knut suggested that he and Harald rule Denmark jointly, Harald was quick to decline the offer. 
he'd much rather continue to rule Denmark on his own, thank you very much. And to make sure his older brother wouldn't get in his way, he offered Knut to raise an army to aid him in his attempts to reclaim England. And King Harald wasn't the only one who was willing to contribute to Knut's mighty invasion fleet. Vikings from all over southern Scandinavia, and even some Slavs from the Baltic seashores, joined him, hoping to gain gold and glory. One of those who offered his services to Knut was none other than Eric Hawkinson, the Jarl from Trøndelag, who had been ruling Norway as a vassal of the Danish king ever since the Battle of Svalder. In late summer of 1015, a little over a year after he'd been forced to flee England, Knut had gathered a force of perhaps 10,000 men. He loaded them onto some 200 longships and set sail for England. In September, he landed in Sandwich, the very same spot from which he had departed England the previous year. From there, the Viking army under Knut's command proceeded to pillage southern England from east to west with a ferocity that was compared to the Viking campaigns during the reign of Alfred the Great. Wessex, the heartland of the dynasty of King Æthelred the Unready, submitted to Knut within a few weeks, as it had to his father Sven Forkbeard two years earlier. At this point, the elder men of Mercia, who had a keen sense for the direction in which the wind was blowing, abandoned his king together with 40 ships and their crews and joined forces with the invading Scandinavians instead. Another defector was Thorkel the Tall, a Viking who had been one of the leaders of the Jomsvikings. Despite being a Scandinavian, he had fought against Sven Forkbeard in 1012, but now he joined his son Knut. Early in 1016, the Vikings moved north, crossing the river Thames, continuing to pillage as they went. Despite their best efforts, the English could do little to stop the Vikings, but what they could do was to punish the elder man of Mercia for his defection. So Edmund, King Ethelred's oldest son, moved into western Mercia together with the Earl of Northumbria. Now the lands of the disloyal eldermen and the innocent population of those lands felt the wrath of the English armies. In the meantime, Knut had reached all the way up north to Northumbria, which fell to him just as easily as the rest of the country had. This meant that the Earl of Northumbria, who had been participating in Edmund's vengeance campaign in Mercia, returned home to defend his own lands against the Viking onslaught. When he did, the Earl and his retinue were killed and Knut tasked Eric Håkansson, the Norwegian Jarl from Trøndelag, with governing Northumbria in Knut's name. In the middle of all this, Æthelred the Unready died on April 23, 1016. His son and heir, Edmund, now succeeded him as king, even though the kingdom had once again more or less been reduced to the city of London, which was still holding out against the Viking onslaught. Obviously, Knut wasn't going to accept that. He returned south and tried to trap the new king in London. The Vikings dug trenches and blocked the Thames in order to isolate the city, but Edmund still managed to break out before Knut's forces had time to finish the encirclement, and the beleaguered English king went to Wessex to raise another army. Edmund was able to temporarily relieve London with this new army, but he suffered heavy losses and had to withdraw to Wessex again to raise even more troops. The Vikings brought London under a siege again, but the city still held out and the invaders had to withdraw. London was saved. At this point, when the tables seemed to be turning, the elder men of Mercia decided it would be a good idea to redefect from Knut back to the English side. This made Knut furious, and so to punish the untrustworthy elderman, he took his army on a little side quest in the shape of a pillaging campaign in Mercia. So in the fall of 1016, 
things were starting to look up for the English, with the exception of the population of Mercia, obviously. But in general, the English seemed to have had the upper hand at the time, and by October, they were driving the Scandinavian invaders toward the coast. Maybe, just maybe, they'd be able to rid themselves of the Vikings this time. On the 18th of October, 1016, Edmund's army attacked Knut's retreating forces, hoping perhaps to have a decisive victory to definitely rout the invaders. But unfortunately for Edmund, in the ensuing battle, the elder men of Mercia switched sides again, and he and his troops just abandoned the battlefield. This allowed the troops under Knut's command to punch through the English lines, breaking up Edmund's army. Instead of a decisive victory that would have put the last nail in the coffin of Knut's invasion, the English were utterly defeated and Edmund had to flee for his life. Knut pursued the English king, and in the end they met to negotiate a peace deal. They agreed to divide England between them, so that all the land south of the river Thames, as well as the city of London, would belong to Edmund, and all the land north of the river to get would be Knut's. They would be kings over their respective realms for the rest of their lives, and the first to die would be inherited by the other, so that England would eventually be reunited once again. Since both men were young, in their twenties, they could reasonably expect to rule their respective parts of England for decades to come. Conveniently enough for Knut, though, Edmund died already within weeks of signing the agreement, on November 30th, 1016 to be exact. Some people have accused Knut of murdering Edmund somehow, but the circumstances surrounding Edmund's death have never been reliably clarified. Despite probably not being too happy about it, and Edmund actually having two sons, the English nobility honoured the agreement between Edmund and Knut, and the Dane was proclaimed King of England. Knut may finally have reclaimed his father's throne, but he knew better than most that you can all too easily be pushed off it again. He swiftly eliminated any prospective challenge from the survivors of the mighty Wessex dynasty. The first year of his reign was marked by the executions of a number of English noblemen whom Knut thought were potential threats. Knut also ordered the murder of a surviving son of Ethelred the Unready, who had fled from England. King Edmund's two sons also went into exile abroad, but they managed to stay alive. Also Ethelred's sons with Emma of Normandy survived in exile, protected by their mother's relatives on the other side of the English Channel. One possible reason why Knut didn't push for the death of those sons was that he actually married Emma of Normandy, Ethelred's widow, in July of, of 1017. It probably wouldn't have been good for their marriage if he had killed his wife's children. After that initial clean-up operation, Knut went on to rule England for almost 20 years, and, as it would turn out, he wasn't such a bad king for the English. Most importantly, he put an end to the Viking raids that had plagued England for decades. It's true, Knut himself and his family had been a driving force behind these attacks, but now he made sure to protect his kingdom against any further Viking raiders. That was not only a great relief to the civilian population, but also a great boon to the English economy which could slowly revive when it was no longer bled dry of silver almost on an annual basis. Another way Knut cemented his reign was by mending fences with the English nobility. When he first ascended the throne, Knut had divided up England between his trusted allies. He made Eric Håkansson from Norway, the Jarl of Northumbria. Thorkel the Tall became Jarl of East Anglia. The old Elderman of Mercia became Jarl of Mercia. 
and Wessex was kept under Knut's personal control. But this division didn't last long. The first Jarl to go was the old Elderman of Mercia, of course, who double-crossed Knut one time too many. So the king had him executed within a year of taking power and gave the control over Mercia to a local noble family. Three years later, Thorkel the Tall was the second of the original Jarls to fall, and a few years after that, Eric Hawkinson died, without assistance from Knut though. When Knut felt sufficiently secure in his position as King of England, he even made an English nobleman, Jarl of Wessex as well. But the nobility wasn't the only power player in England. Knut also had to placate the church, which wasn't too keen on him. Even though he was a Christian, he doesn't seem to have been particularly religious, certainly not in the way Olaf Tryggvason was, for instance. Knut didn't seem to mind that some of his Scandinavian subjects clung to the old religion and even wrote pagan praise poetry about him. But that wasn't the reason his relations with the English church were tense to begin with. The church did, however, take exception to the way Knut had conquered the country, laying waste to churches and monasteries and other church property. They also found it awkward that the new king had married Emma of Normandy, even though he already had a living wife from a previous Christian marriage. In an effort to improve his relations with the church, Knut spent considerable resources rebuilding churches and monasteries that had been plundered and destroyed by Vikings in general and those under his command in particular. He even built new churches and was known to give generous gifts to various monastic institutions in the form of land, tags, exemptions and relics. And this charm offensive worked. The chroniclers recording his reign was generally happy to describe him as a good king, wise and successful, politely downplaying the unpleasant business of pillaging and bigamy. He is even known to history as Knut the Great, and the church doesn't seem to have had any objections to that epithet. Knut may have been a great success in England, but his grip on Scandinavia, was, and especially Norway, was far shakier. Already back in 1015, when Eric Hawkinson had left the country to join Knut's invasion of England, a guy called Olav Haraldsson decided that it was time to re-establish Norwegian independence and declared himself king. In 1016, just as the fighting was at its most intense in England, Olav succeeded in his mission and defeated the forces loyal to Eric Hawkinson. Olav Haraldsson would not, however, manage to establish a permanently independent Norway. Nonetheless, We'll return to Olaf's story next time, because even though he didn't manage to get rid of the Danes once and for all, he's a very important character in Norwegian history. In 1018, just a couple of years after Norway slipped from Knut's control, his brother Harald, who had been king of Denmark, died. And even though there were some opponents to the ID, Knut managed to secure the Danish throne for himself. He appointed his brother-in-law, a guy called Ulf, regent of Denmark, and even left his and Emma's son, Hardaknut, to be brought up in the household of Ulf and his wife, Estrid Svensdottir, Knut's sister. Knut had decided that Hardaknut would one day succeed him as king of England, Denmark and Norway, if he could reclaim it, so making Ulf his foster father was not only a great honour, but also a sign that Knut trusted him completely. As it would turn out, though, that trust would prove unjustified. When Knut went back to England in 1020, Denmark was attacked by the Norwegians and the Swedes. At this critical point, Ulf chose to have Hardaknut declared king of Denmark, replacing his father Knut, and, since the boy was still just a child, Ulf, his foster father, would rule in his name without having to bother with consulting Knut anymore. 
As soon as Knut caught wind of this, he went back to Denmark, not only to fight off the invading Norwegians and Swedes, but also to deal with his disloyal brother-in-law. It took a few years, but in 1026, at the Battle of Helgeå, Knut defeated the Norwegians and Swedes and could reaffirm that he, and no one else, was indeed king of Denmark. Ulf tried to fix their relationship, but at Christmas that same year, Knut had Ulf killed. The threat to Denmark was eliminated, but Knut realized that as long as this Olav Haraldsson character was allowed to run Norway, Knut's empire would always be vulnerable to attacks from that direction. So in 1028, Knut launched an invasion of Norway to recapture it. As usual, Trøndelag was the first place Knut tried to take, and he went there with a fleet of 50 ships. Olav Haraldsson found himself powerless to stop the invasion, so he went into exile and Knut was declared king of Norway. Now he was riding high. He had reclaimed all three of his father's kingdoms, and just like his father, he had established himself as one of the most powerful men in Europe. But Knut couldn't run all these three kingdoms himself, of course. The communications available to him wouldn't have enabled him to rule such a large territory in an effective manner. So he appointed the son of the old Jarl Erik Håkansson, who of course was called Håkan Eriksson, as his vassal regent in Norway. Håkon was the obvious choice, since his family had been running Norway as vassals to Danish kings for several generations by now. Unfortunately for Knut, and for Håkon Eriksson himself, Håkon drowned in a shipwreck off the coast of the Orkney Islands already in the winter of 1029-1030. Upon Håkon's death, Knut appointed a new vassal, but the new guy lacked the skill and wisdom needed to govern the kingdom, and Norway once again rebelled and slipped out of Knut's hands. Knut never gained control over Norway, because he died on the 12th of November 1035. In Denmark, he was succeeded by his son Hardeknut, just as he had planned it, but Hardeknut was so preoccupied with fighting to retake Norway that he lost control over England to his half-brother, Harald Harefoot, who was Sven Forkbeard's son from the, his first marriage. Hardeknut's mother, Queen Emma of Normandy, had to flee to safety across the English Channel, but it was only temporary. In 1040, the situation had calmed down in Scandinavia, and Hardeknut was free to claim the crown of England, which he successfully did. Denmark and England were once again ruled by the same person, until Hardeknut's untimely death already in 1042, only seven years after his father. At that point, it all just unraveled. The English crown reverted to Anglo-Saxon hands when Edward the Confessor, Hardeknut's half-brother, via his mother Emma of Normandy, became king of England. In Scandinavia, the independent king of Norway fought over the crown of Denmark with Sven Estridsson, Knut's nephew. Note that Sven didn't go by the expected Ulfsson, but preferred to use his mother's name, Estrid, creating a matronym instead of the expected patronym. But this should not be seen as an act of proto-feminism. He only did it because his mother was of royal stock, the daughter of Sven Forkbeard and the brother of Knut the Great. Sven Estridsson didn't want people to forget that he was connected to the royal family by blood just because his disgraced father hadn't been. So this Viking empire, established by Sven Forkbeard and ruled by his son Knut and grandson Hardeknut, was ultimately short-lived. The three kingdoms that made up the empire, Denmark, Norway and England, had little in common beyond their ruler, 
and when Hardeknut died, there was no one strong enough to claim the whole empire for himself. Whereas Edward the Confessor would rule England for several years in relative peace, in Scandinavia, the struggle between Denmark and Norway would flare up again. Next time, we'll look at Olav Haraldsson and his role in that struggle. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, don't hesitate to tell everyone you know about it. If you get them to listen to the podcast, you'll have someone to discuss the instability of early Scandinavian states with. Please also consider leaving a favorable review, and perhaps some stars, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners. Don't forget that if you want to know more about Old Norse mythology, you can buy my book called Thor, Odin, Loki, and the Old Norse Myths. Look for it on Amazon or just Google it. Buying the book is an excellent way to support the podcast. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you're more into Twitter, then you can follow follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.